evening. It is a thrill for me to be back here. Uh, when your pastor extended the invitation, there's no hesitation on our side to accept and be back with you all. It's so good to see so many familiar faces and some new faces as well. And I'm so thankful to be here and looking forward to sharing God's uh, word with you tonight. Obviously, it's been a while since we've been here, and my family has grown and changed. Our daughter is now nine years old. She's going into the fourth grade. She has made a profession of faith and has been baptized, so we're very thrilled about that. Our son, Ethan, is now six and starting kindergarten this year. He's quite the athlete. He plays soccer and other sports and really enjoys that. We have a a second son, a third child that you haven't met. His name is Evan. He's three years old. He was born after we left here. And I guess this is a good time to make the first public announcement that my wife is pregnant with our fourth child. So, Lord willing, uh, sometime around February we'll have another one to take care of. So we're really thankful for that as well. Uh, Anytime you're asked to speak somewhere, the first thought is, what do I preach? And to your uh, disappointment or perhaps to your relief, it will not be from James chapter 3. Instead, we will be looking at a topic of worship. Uh, I chose the topic of worship because I think it's a very important topic. It's a topic that is much debated and much uh, talked about, and obviously it's something that uh, we need to give our attention to. Having said that, it's also a very broad topic. Uh, Worship is huge, so we'll have to narrow that down. If you think of large topics in the Bible, something like prayer, even that is considered contained in the topic of worship. So worship is a large topic, and of course it's a necessary topic. Because of all the debate and discussion that goes on, the differences and different ways people approach worship, it's important to know uh, what God's Word has to say for us, and I hope we can see that this evening. I think too often uh, we, and when I say we, I mean Christianity as a whole, takes worship for granted. Uh, We come to church each week, and sometimes we forget the significance of why we do it, why we're here, uh, what God has for us. But really, worship is the reason we were created. In fact, it's the reason we were redeemed or saved. God created man to worship him. Man rebelled against God in sin. And since that rebellion, God has sought to bring us back to a place of proper and true Worship. That's the purpose of his redemptive plan. We could say that is the reason Christ came and died for our sins. And when we think of worship, we can think of personal worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. That's personal worship. And we can also think in terms of corporate worship. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling together. So worship in the broad sense, we would say, is a life of obedience to God's Word. It's a sacrificing of ourselves and our gifts uh, for God's purposes. Romans 12, chapter 1 says, We present our bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service of worship. So the glory of God... The glory of God must be the underlying motive in everything that we do in life. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, the glory of God is the underlying motive. And God is to be worshipped everywhere, in all places and at all times. But also, He is to be worshipped in the corporate assembly of His redeemed 
people and our worship on Sundays, if I could focus on Sunday mornings in particular, really is designed to stimulate us during the rest of the week. As Hebrews 10.24 says, we are to stimulate one another to love and good works. Therefore, don't forsake the assembling of each other because we need each other to encourage us so that we continue to go out throughout our week worshiping the Lord. But the focus this evening, for our purposes, is on that corporate worship. Worship in the church. If you could, for me, think of Sunday morning worship. When, we get, when you gather together here in this congregation at Ambassador Baptist Church, what are you intending to do? So we think of church, and we know that church is a place where believers assemble together as the body of Christ with the realization that the place where we gather has significance only because of the people that meet there. The church is God's assembly. It is a people called out or separated from the world by God, incorporated into, the, into Christ and indwelt by His Holy Spirit. And worship is central to the existence of the church. It's why God has called us together. It's why God has called you here at Ambassador Baptist Church. It is essential to the existence of the church. In fact, the ultimate purpose of the church, I would suggest, is to worship the one who called it into being. And in forming the church as a worshiping community, God has, through his word, through the scriptures, given us instructions. He has given us instructions both as to the nature of true worship And the forms of true worship. And the goal of our worship service, then, is to draw near to God as an assembly and have him draw near to us. The heart of the worship service ought to be one of reverence and awe, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says. It ought to be one of soberness, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says. And it ought to be out of respect for the body of Christ. Now the ideal of worship, worship basically means to attribute worth to something, to show uncommon reverence or respect for someone or something being thought worthy of honor and devotion. The primary New Testament word for worship denotes for us the act of bowing down or prostrating yourself in submissive lowliness and deep reverence. So we have throughout our New Testament the word for worship translated as devotion, as fear, as standing in awe, as adoration, as bowing down, or as serving. All words for worship. And in the New Testament church, worship is directed to God alone, John chapter 4 tells us. And to worship God is to ascribe to Him supreme worth for which He alone is worthy. Therefore, true worship is a sincere expression of our devotion to God. So, in worship, we are gathering with God's people in God's presence in order to exalt Him through our praise, through our prayers, through the proclamation of His Word, through the participation in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and in presenting ourselves and our gifts in glad submission to His will. That is worship. 
Now, I say all that to say this. Church, by its very definition, is a group of believers. It is believers who are assembled together for the purpose of worship. And true worship, by its very definition, cannot be done by unbelievers. Now understand that the presence of unbelievers among believers when we assemble together to worship is expected and encouraged. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 explains that for us. But we should not design our worship to be attractive to lost people. In other words, they shouldn't determine what we do. But too often the trend in Christianity today is to change our worship service to accommodate Seekers to accommodate the lost, to make them feel comfortable, to be culturally relevant. And they make that the basis for what they do. So they change the way they sing, and they change the way they dress, and they change the way they preach, and they change the name of their church, anything that they think will be offensive. But rather than that, what we do in worship should not be determined by unbelievers. Rather, what we do in worship should flow out of a deep comprehension of God. And that's it. When we make our decisions on how to approach Him in worship, that should be our first and only consideration. So we must worship God. We must worship God in accordance with who He is and how He has revealed Himself to us. So we must understand who God is and what He is like and a knowledge of his character if we are going to worship him acceptably and properly. So at the foundation of our worship of God is an understanding of who God is. Worshippers that do not understand who God is will not worship God properly. That stands to reason. Therefore, any study of worship, like what we're doing tonight, must begin with a study of the God we worship. Though much could be and should be said, I've tried to boil it down for our purposes this evening to two key ideals that directly affect our corporate worship. Namely, what is worship and how do we go about it? And we'll start with the most basic of truths that we can with regards to worship. And that is this. There are basically two types of worship. There is acceptable worship and there is unacceptable worship. That's it. Your worship falls into one of those two categories, acceptable or unacceptable. And most of us base our views on worship by our experiences or by tradition. John Frame, who is an author of a a book on worship and a theologian, writes this. He says, It often surprises people to learn that God is not always pleased when people worship him. We might be inclined to think that God should be thankful for any attention we give him out of our busy schedules. But worship is not about God's thanking us. It's about our thanking him. And God is not pleased with just anything we choose to do in his presence. No, the mighty Lord of heaven and earth demands that our worship, indeed all of our life, be governed By his word, he goes on to say, modern Christians are far too casual about worship. Now, there are things that are not pleasing to the Lord. 
there are forms of worship that are not pleasing to the, to the Lord. And it is not true to think that God will simply be pleased with anything we do. If we just show up, God's going to be happy. That's not true. That's not the case. No, we must approach God, His way, on His terms, in accordance with who He is, as He's revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures. So who God is dictates how we worship Him in keeping with His character. Now, I've made a list of of some characteristics of God that I'll walk through in a moment. But just understand, this isn't an all-inclusive list. It's, It's just a sampling. To give you an idea of how God's character affects the way we worship. It goes something like this. The first thing on my list is this. God is spirit. John chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit. Well, how is God being spirit? How does that affect the way we worship? Well, John 4, 24 says this. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So that tells us something about worship, doesn't it? tells us worship is an internal response, uh, internal response of our heart. It's not a physical or external ritual. It's an internal response of our heart. But more than just an emotional response, it's based in truth. So we worship Him in spirit according to His truth. God is spirit. It affects our worship. We could say, secondly, that God is the living and true God. Jeremiah 10.10, 10, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.9. He is living and true. God is the creator, redeemer, and sovereign ruler of all things. We sung about that tonight to the praise of His glorious grace. He is the creator. How does that affect the way you approach Him in worship? It ought to. We see, fourthly, that God is a loving God. 1 John 4.8 He is a fearful God. Deuteronomy 4.23 Hebrews 12.28 Revelations 14.7 Revelations 15.4 He is a worthy God. Psalm 99.5, 99.9, Isaiah 25.1, Revelations 4.11, Revelations 5.12. God is a jealous God. Exodus 24, uh, ch- chapter 34, verses 14 and 15, Deuteronomy 5.9. How is God being a jealous God? How does that affect the way you worship Him? Well, He demands exclusivity, doesn't He? Because He is a jealous God. God is the only God Psalm 86.10, Isaiah 37.16, 1 Timothy 1.17. He is the only God. All these characteristics of God tell us something about Him and how we ought to be approaching Him in worship. And the last one I have for us is one that I hope to unpack in the rest of the message, and that is simply this. God is holy. God is holy. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Psalm 99, the 99th Psalm. The ideal that God is holy. And in connection with worship, we would say this. Our worship must reflect God's holiness. Our worship must reflect God's holiness. If you're at Psalm 99, we begin reading in verse 1. The Bible says, The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is exalted above all peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. Drop down to verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God and worship 
at his footstool. Holy is he. Drop down to verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. I don't think it takes much to understand what that passage is talking about. It's calling you to worship. It's calling you to praise and exalt God. And it's on the basis of His holiness. Repeated several times in in these six verses. Holy is the Lord. Holy is He. So His holiness, His holiness must be reflected in our worship of Him. Theologically, we would say that holiness is God's fundamental or His governing attributes. In other words, all else we know about God flows from His holiness. His love is a holy love. His wrath is holy wrath. God's holiness is His governing attribute. Now, the ideal of holiness is simply to be set apart from common or ordinary use. He is holy. He is set apart. John MacArthur, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with from his program Grace to You and the pastor of Grace Community Church, he identifies the neglect of God's holiness as a lack that is eating at the heart of our worship. He writes this in his book on worship. He says, I am convinced that the downgrading of worship, scripture, and theology will ultimately usher in serious doctrinal compromise. It is the lost consciousness of the majesty of God which has turned worship into what appeals to congregations. Perhaps the most visible signs of pragmatism are seen in the convulsive changes that have revolutionized the church worship service in the past decade. Some of evangelicalism's largest and most influential churches now boast Sunday services that are designed purposely to be more rollicking than reverent. Do you understand the problem with that? They are designed to be entertaining to the congregation. So in other words, when they're determining what they're going to do in worship, how they are going to approach God, they're doing so on what they think people want. What will entertain them? What will keep them coming back? Rather than basing what they do on who God is, how he has revealed himself to us, basing it on his holiness. Because that would change a lot of the way people do worship, don't you think? If we are to worship God, we must first define his nature. And it's important to worship God in terms of how he has revealed himself to us in Scripture. And again, I believe the one attribute which most summed up The nature of God is the holiness of God. That is, God is holy, and He must be worshipped as holy. He is flawless. He is without error. He is without sin. He is without mistake. And He is fully righteous. And the basic comprehension of true worship, then, is the holiness of God. Well, how does that affect our worship directly? I would suggest this. Proper worship approaches God with reverence and awe. And let me show you that in Scripture. You're in Psalm uh, Psalm 99. Look over across the page to Psalm 96. Psalm 96 and verse 9. The Bible says, Worship the Lord in holy attire. 
tremble before him all the earth. Or if you have a different translation, it would say, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And perhaps the key New Testament verse for worship is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. It says this, Because of what you have received. In other words, because of God's salvation, His gift to you, bringing you into His family, because of what you have received, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. There's our word, because you remember there's acceptable worship and there's unacceptable worship. And this verse says, let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. So God must be worshipped as holy. And the perception of His holiness produces a response of godly fear. You're in Psalm 96. Look at verse 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So here's the point. Holiness can never be perceived apart from fear. Because... If you perceive God as utterly holy as you ought, then you will perceive yourself as utterly unholy. Isn't that true? The closer you get to God and His perfections, it reveals to you your own imperfections, your own failures and faults and sins. So the more you see God's holiness, the more you're aware of your own unholiness or unworthiness. And that ought to produce a sense of fear in you. Why? Because a holy God has a right to a holy reaction against sin. That is, His wrath. So, the true spirit of worship is an overwhelming sense of our own unholiness in the presence of a holy God. And the fact that we are not consumed gives us all the more reason to worship. Let me illustrate that for you. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And as you turn there, let me just catch us up a little bit. So we're saying we've gathered together to worship. And as we assemble together as believers, those who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have gathered together to draw near to God, to enter into His presence, as it were. And the first thing we notice about God is His holiness. And when we notice His holiness, we recognize our own unholiness. And that's what we have here in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 gives us a glimpse of what it really is like to be in the presence of God. God reveals that to Isaiah. And Isaiah is caught up, as it were, and he's now before the throne of God in his physical presence. And notice how Isaiah chapter 6 unfolds for us. It begins in the year of King Uzziah's death. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So you're getting a sense of the majesty and the glory of God in the presence of God. Notice verse 2. Seraphim stood above him. 
each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So here he is in the presence of God. And what's the first thing we're struck with? God's holiness. The angels themselves never cease to praise God for his holiness. And he goes on to say the whole earth is full of his glory. Notice verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled. There's the response of fear. And the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, here's Isaiah's response, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So here's Isaiah. He enters into the presence of God. He's overcome by the holiness and the majesty of God. And the response of Isaiah in light of God's holiness, Woe is me. I am a man undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among the people of unclean lips. He becomes utterly aware of his own unholiness and his unworthiness to be there in the presence of God. But it doesn't stop there. Notice verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So what we have in this passage is a ritual of ceremonial cleaning. That's what the coal represents. And Isaiah, recognizing his own sinfulness, is now given forgiveness for his sin. He is forgiven. His iniquities have been taken away. His sins are forgiven, the end of verse 7. And here's Isaiah's response in verse 8. Then I heard a voice from the Lord saying, Who shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. It's a response of worship. He's ready to serve. Here he was in the presence of a holy God, recognizing his own unworthiness, his own sinfulness. God offers him forgiveness and cleansing from that sin. And the response of Isaiah's heart is one of worship. Lord, here I am. Send me. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to use my gifts and abilities for your purposes. So we see here the response of Isaiah is a humble, broken, and contrite spirit, which we already saw in John chapter 4. If we're to worship God, we're to do so in spirit and in truth. He sees the truth. He's broken by it. And his spirit responds in service to the Lord. So this is a contrast to what we see often in our day. It's a contrast to entering the presence of God with flippancy. It's a contrast to, empty, to, to entering the presence of God with carelessness or casually in our thinking. No, we must consider that if we flippantly rush into the presence of God with life unattended to by repentance and confession and cleansing by the Spirit, then we are vulnerable to His holy reaction. And it is only by His grace that we breathe another breath, 
Even though we are His children and have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, God still has the right to punish us for our sins. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says He chastens His children. So we're stuck, we're, we stand there in awe. What is the ideal of awe? Well, many of us, I believe, have had the experience of being completely surprised by a wonderful event. Perhaps someone has given you a gift of some sort or performed some act of kindness for you or provided some life-changing opportunity. And we're speechless. We're overwhelmed by the gesture. And we try to imagine, but we fail to conceive how we could return such a great favor that has been bestowed upon us. Now, I add to that illustration that the gift giver is omnipotent. The gift giver is omniscient. The gift giver is omnipresent. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchanging. He is the ruler of all creation. And then you begin to understand something of the concept of biblical awe. To stand in the presence of that God who has done that for you. And at the same time, joy is raised to the highest degree. It's a reverent joy, if you will, as our sorrow over our own sinfulness quickly dissolves into joy as we find forgiveness through the grace of God. Doesn't that produce worship in you? A heart, an internal heart's response to His truth. So worship carries us to the very presence of God where we should be overcome by the magnificence of His holiness. When you think of the presence of God, if you take the time sometime to look through your Old Testament and look at the presence of God, when God made an appearance to the Israelites, they knew it. His presence was so magnificent that to enter it inappropriately meant sudden death. Well, why was that? Because sinful, fallen people cannot stand in the physical presence of a holy God. So when we enter His presence, overwhelmed by His majesty and His power, how could we then ignore what He is saying to us through the preaching of His Word? So I would suggest to you that we approach worship with dignity, with respect, with sober-mindedness, with a seriousness, a loftiness, a consecration. See, I don't think there's anything more serious or more dignified than coming before the Lord in worship. And when we call people together in an assembly like this for the purpose of worshiping God in a collective church, and we're going to open God's Word together, you need to treat that as a very special occasion. It's not something we should take for granted. In fact, I think it's the most dignified occasion that you will ever engage in in your life as you come before the presence of God in worship. And we should never be willing to downgrade it to appease our culture. So the issue in worship, it isn't the place of worship. It isn't our personal preferences. The issue is who we are worshiping, who it is that we worship. 
And it's not enough just to worship in any way we choose. The object of our worship must be clearly understood, and only then will we offer worship that is truly acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. And the end result of our worship will be that God will be glorified. Christians, we will be purified as we worship God in spirit and in truth. The church as a whole will be edified as we stimulate one another to good to love and good works. And the lost will be evangelized. We don't reach the lost by becoming like the lost and appeasing oh, their desires. We reach the lost by extolling God in His majesty and His glory. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. We're so thankful for the instructions that You give us for every avenue of life. And in particular, tonight in regards to worship. Lord, as we go from here and consider the things that we've seen in your word, I pray that as we make decisions for ourselves and for our families and for our church with regards to worship, that we would start and end with you and who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us. And that we would have a proper response and offer a worship that is acceptable to you that magnifies your name, that shows reverence and awe for who you are and what you've done. We're so thankful for your grace and your mercy. Pray that as we go away from here, Lord, we'd be encouraged by your word and encouraged by one another to continue to follow you in glad obedience, which is our reasonable service of worship. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.